Welcome to Millennium Global's Global Macro Podcast, uh, where today we are here to talk about our quarterly outlook for Q1 2023. I'm Eve Danbury, a portfolio analyst on the discretionary investment team here at Millennium Global, and I'm joined today by Pia Sashdeva, our lead economist and strategist. Afternoon, Pia. Hi, Eve. Thank you for joining me today um, to go through your macro thoughts looking into the next quarter. I think just to start with, it's worth saying that a lot has changed over the past quarter, uh, and certainly from when we last spoke. Um, Inflation finally looks to be peaking globally, and with that, we are starting to see signs that central banks are thinking about slowing the pace of tightening. At the same time, though, growth remains vulnerable under the weight of tightening that's already occurred, uh, and the risk environment uh, broadly remains quite uncertain going into next year. But we can speak about this a bit further. First, really, I just wanted to ask you, how are you thinking about inflation um, and the shift in component contribution to inflation, particularly focusing uh, in the US, which remains the center point of focus for markets at the moment? Yeah, so within that, core inflation is obviously crucial for for the Fed. Um, In terms of what we're seeing in US inflation, finally seeing these supply-side factors begin to bring inflation down. And that's namely energy prices and also core goods prices that were pushed up by scarcity issues during the pandemic. Um, So those are the, the... components that the Fed had originally called transitory, and they've taken time to come out, but it's finally starting to contribute to that disinflation. Um, And because of that, that's seen the contribution of the services, of the core services inflation component within core be the main driver of inflation, which is shelter, and then a whole bunch, which is services excluding that shelter component. And that's the more sticky cyclical part of inflation that the Fed are a bit, a little bit more used to um, doing monetary policy for. Um, And interestingly, you know, shelter, we we have more information on from other house prices and rental prices. And then what's left is that services component excluding the shelter which is essentially a measure of how tight the labor market is because those prices reflect you know a high share of those firms cost base or wages so then it reflects how much pass through you're effectively getting um and in some ways that that bit of inflation requires a more aggressive approach because it's more sticky but at the same time presents more over tightening risk because it's literally the other side of the Fed's mandate, which is the labor market and unemployment. So the Fed have to be very careful when navigating that component of inflation. And that's really the bit that is left. Um, we know that that's, that component has made them quite cautious. Uh, and in the last Fed meeting, it was really that component of inflation, which led to the Fed revising up their projections for how high the terminal rate was going to go in this hiking cycle. So you speak a bit about the concern that the Fed have in terms of possibly over tightening, but ultimately there is that sticky component of inflation, which they do need to tackle. In terms of the tightening already done by the Fed and central banks globally, which is a considerable amount, how much feed through has there been to growth uh, and consumers? 
So the the sort of easy it's a very complex question, but the the short answer is some, but not all. Um, monetary policy acts with lags up to two years. Um, the bit of the of the economy that you can very clearly see as being impacted by monetary policy is mortgage rates. Um, I mean, clearly financial conditions have tightened as well. So you've seen it in financial markets and then you see it in mortgage rates and the housing sector. Um, and so that's the the element of growth that has, has really been hit. You can see that residential investment has been dragging on overall GDP growth, for example. But so far, the consumer and businesses have remained quite resilient. Um, but the full impact hasn't been seen yet through through various channels, through the growth channel, uh, and then it will hit the labour market channel, and then finally inflation. And then from that, specifically on the Fed, what are your thoughts on how they might be looking at their rate path from here? And how do you think they're thinking about the lags to the tightening that they've already done? Yeah, so we saw the Fed change their reaction function to be a bit more forward-looking a few meetings ago. Um, they inserted that sentence in a statement, didn't they, about, you know, thinking about the lags to monetary policy. And that was essentially a bit of a, a dovish pivot for them. And that enabled them to be more forward-looking. And I think there's two parts to that. The first is they can acknowledge then that shelter prices, at least on an annual basis, are coming down quite sharply, which I actually think is a surprise for them. Um, and then the second part of that is the labour market and just acknowledging that, you know, the, the inflation that we've seen, that we are seeing today in the labour market, which is high wages, is partly a reflection of how strong the economy was you know, a, a year ago. Um, and for us, that leaves the terminal quite well priced in markets. And we saw a confirmation of that in the latest dot plot. So that's sort of, sort of an agreement with the Fed there. Um, and interestingly, you know, they, Powell said in, his, um, in the press conference after the, the FMC meeting, that the latest disappointments in inflation gave the, the committee more confidence of their forward-looking projections. And therefore, we're less likely to see that terminal be revised higher from here, even though that's been the case through the entire year. So um, I, think that, I think the terminal is, is pretty well-priced from here. The other thing I would say is you know, what the Fed is saying in terms of where their path of monetary policy is going to go, which is a very gradual cutting cycle, is quite different to where their forecast or evolution of the economy suggests that that rate should be going. You know, the evolution of the economy, you know, their projections for inflation and unemployment suggest a much more aggressive cutting cycle than what the Fed is saying. Now, you can break that up into two components. The first is inflation. They expect inflation to come down to their target over three years. That suggests, purely from an inflation point of view, you don't need restrictive policy. And then on the other side of the mandate, they're saying that unemployment is likely to rise above their Nairu, which would suggest from the other side of the mandate, they actually need accommodative policy because unemployment rises to a higher level. So that's quite interesting what the Fed sort of explicitly say they do and implicitly um, sort of say that they what they should do if they are genuinely taking a forward-looking view is quite different. Now, the market's some way in between them, which suggest, suggests that we could actually move lower in US yields. Um, but I think that's quite an interesting dynamic, and that's something that the market, and particularly equity markets, are going to have to deal with, which is, are the Fed going to cut rates when they see signs of 
growth and particularly the labor market really slowing. Um, why are they doing that? It's really all about expectations. They're, they're trying to keep expectations uh, stable because it's part of their disinflationary process going forward. So there are clear reasons as to why they're doing that. There was maybe a bit of pushback on financial conditions this week during the FOC um, press conference. Um, but ultimately, their forecast suggests that they should be cutting more aggressively than, well, than what they're saying. And I think that's a, a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, definitely, from what you've said, does make for quite an interesting dynamic going into next year. It's funny, I feel I always come out of these conversations with you thinking I would absolutely hate to be a central bank at the moment, just finding that balance between bringing down inflation but worrying about future growth and ultimately cuts that may have to come at at a faster pace. Um, Just before we turn to currency specifics, I think it's worth just adding a comment on markets more broadly. I mean, correlation across asset classes is extremely high on a historical basis, in particular, the correlation between equities and bonds, which remains very positive at the moment. From a trading mindset, these correlations stand very important when it comes to thinking about peak inflation um, and where the turning point for the dollar might be. So on the discretionary team on my side, from a markets and trading standpoint, and in a world that that ultimately front runs economic information. We've already seen evidence of the peak uh, in inflation and the peak dollar trade coming through. Um, By way of example, last month, the DXY staged a 5% drawdown, which is actually the biggest one month fall in the DXY since 2010. And although this is driven by many factors, including a fall in US yields, um, the China reopening news and improvement in broad risk appetite, Ultimately, it leads back to that that peak inflation narrative that we've spoken about. On the investment side, we've reacted accordingly to the turn in US yields and positioned ourselves as a short dollar portfolio over the last two months. But from a macro eco standpoint, what's your view on the dollar into Q1 next year? And how are you thinking about those correlations? The the two things that, the, the two catalysts that, um, made us change our mind about the dollar was firstly the US inflation outlook. So when we saw signs that inflation was really turning, uh, that was important. And then secondly, the Fed's reaction function. So, you know, it's a, it was a call whether strong labor market data was going to make them more hawkish or not. And so the fact that they, you know, are taking a more forward looking view is, is important. And they have this narrative of, you know, get rates up to a moderate moderately restrictive level and then keep it sideways and restrictive until inflation comes down. And there's other inputs in there, you know, how much financial conditions have have tightened, uh, quantitative tightening, what impact that's going to have um, through sort of broad monetary conditions, um, and also maybe financial stability as well. So there's a lot going on there. For the dollar specifically, from a macro point of view, um, it's, I think it's just as simple as saying the factors that pushed the dollar up, which was U.S. yield differentials, a commodity price shock, which was supportive of the U.S., and poor sentiment, which was partly driven by zero COVID in China, have all gone away, if not reversed. And so these are inflation peaking, central banks reducing their pace of tightening, China reopening, and Europe being a little bit bailed out from very good weather outcomes in early winter 
uh, and actually the probability of a uh, and another terms of trade shock or gas prices actually moving meaningfully lower. Um, so that sort of that's boosted sentiment uh, as well. Um, so so in that way, still still negative the dollar, but I would say it's a cautious negative for a couple of reasons. So firstly, U.S. yields at the front end of the curve have clearly from somewhat from run this inflation narrative. So that's why I'm a bit cautious, just to acknowledge that. Um, that's effectively saying the same thing as some of this is priced in. <laughs> the The second bit that makes me a bit more cautious is the growth outlook. Um, so the US is on track for broadly a mild recession. That's likely to, that's policy induced, right? That's where the Fed wants the economy to go. They want to create unemployment in order to um, to loosen the labor market, make sure it's equilibrium and ultimately bring wages down. Um, and so it depends where these rate cuts are coming from is sort of the, the other angle of it. If rate, if future rate cuts are coming from growth concerns and unemployment concerns, that's a negative environment for equity risk. And for the dollar, that end, that'll end up flipping us over to the other side of the dollar smile. So while I don't expect a recession in the first quarter of the year, conscious that growth is likely to slow from here and the probability of a recession rises. Um, and so that's likely to weigh on equity risk going forward, particularly in the case where the Fed continue to push back on this idea that they're gonna that they're not going to cut rates as growth slows and as unemployment rises because they're worried about making a policy mistake. In that type of environment you can very clearly see volatility coming in equity markets. So that's what makes me a bit more a bit more cautious. It makes sense. Um, I mean, you, you spoke about it briefly within your explanation there, uh, Europe uh, and the potential that, you know, they've been bailed out in terms of energy prices having come down and they've been slightly more resilient given they've had a slightly warmer start to winter. But I think we can probably both still argue that the risks as it stands are that inflation in Europe could be stickier, particularly the core component, um, and when comparing that to the US as well. Uh, and really, this is based, I guess, on the feedback from commodity prices, but also um, with rises in wages that we're starting to see. So how how does that translate into your ECB view? Um, and is there more to go for them on rate hikes? Um, and then with that, what's your euro view as a consequence for Q1? Yeah, so I'll start with, with inflation. Um I mean, I think what's interesting is I'll just point to the ECB inflation forecast really for core, which is in Europe, core inflation is expected to rise going into next year, whereas in the US, core inflation is expected to fall. So that's quite a different dynamic. And on the, the, the European inflation dynamics, and this is broadly including the UK as well, is interesting because, you know, firstly, you have a higher contribution from energy into your headline. So that already boosts the headline inflation. Um, up to a higher level in the US. Then you have additional pass-through into core, which is a, then boosts the core inflation. Then it looks like there's some residual effects from, from reopening as well. And then there's an extra dynamic of some currency depreciation as well, feeding in through into core, uh, pushing up core in, in the Eurozone in the UK as well. And because of that, so that's the, the inflation fundamentals, but because of that, there's also then higher risks of second round effects if you have a tight labor market. So 
both the fundamentals and the reaction function now have to be a bit more hawkish. Now, what's slightly different is the the real disposable income channels going to be tighter and weigh on growth more in Europe. So there's less from that angle for monetary policy to do. But I think what's happened is, you know, particularly for the ECB, is that they've just been too far behind. They've only just got to neutral in the meeting this week where they've you know, hiked 50 basis points. Um, and that's why they've sounded so hawkish. And we continue to, to see hawkish risks around the ECB and therefore for the euro to have some, some rate support. So a positive euro dollar um, and sort of the broader DXY index, um, partly because euro is still undervalued, uh, but also because ECB are likely to be hawkish. And that's as a function of not only the inflation fundamentals, but their reaction function from here in the context that they are still so far behind given where they needed to be. And you know, there's a really interesting question on maybe why they're so far behind. But I think it, you know, it's partly because lots of the inflation so far has been supply driven and central banks are just reluctant to uh, to tighten monetary policy when inflation is not demand driven. So there's there's been an aversion to that and therefore um, the ECB just been too late and now are becoming you know, even more hawkish. Uh, so that I think that that supports a, a positive euro dollar view there. Um, so sticking with undervalued currencies and arguably flipping to the place that is perhaps the most behind out of everyone in terms of monetary policy, Japan, um, and looking to the yen, it continues to stand out on a valuation basis. Um, but what else leads you to have a more positive view on the currency into next year? Yeah, so as you said, I'm pos- positive euro and yen. So, you know, they're big chunks of the DXY, uh, more cautious on other currencies, which we'll, which we'll come to. But I think just going back to something you said earlier on, which is the equity bond correlation, that's been really important for the yen because yield falling is a reflection of lower inflation and not growth concerns. So yen can strengthen on on um, on lower inflation, which is sort of, yeah, the, the equity bond dynamic has been a, a different one um, to, to, I guess, a normal cycle. And that's changed how we see the yen. Um, and you can see you can see this, for example, like, you know, equity, equities can rally whilst Aussie yen moves sideways. So that's that's really quite interesting and something I point to, to to show that real change in dynamic. Um, you know, we spoke about our US inflation views, and so that should support some yen strength as yields continue to fall. Um, now, there's only so far yields can fall from an inflation point of view. Um, but then I think there's scope for yields or front-end yields at least to fall further on recession risks. So that growth side of things is likely to become more important through the year. And I see the probability of a recession being underpriced in the two to three year part of the curve, at least, because the market still has restrictive policy priced in that time period. So if you're, you must be worried that inflation is not going to come down, but also not especially worried about a recession either, where the Fed has to cut aggressively. Um, so, you know, that's that scenario, both from the inflation and, rece- and sort of recession point of view, means that the yen from here likely has quite a lot of good good risk reward. And so that from a then in the context of supportive valuation, 
uh, and also lower stable to lower commodity prices is quite helpful for, for the yen as well. So cheap with good risk reward, I would say. Thanks, Pia. Yeah, I mean, a complex, diverse macro environment um, can lead to many opportunities. And we've spoken about a couple of the opportunities where currencies could appreciate. Um, but it does also lead us towards more balanced views. Um, and that brings me to our, our home currency, sterling. It's actually had a pretty extreme comeback over the last quarter of this year um, since the low of 103.15 cable post the mini budget that we had in September. Um, and there are a number of explanations within markets as to why this has happened, notably covering of short positions, but also because sterling traditionally has quite a high correlation um, with equities and risk sentiment. What are your thoughts on the pound um, in an environment where inflation is coming lower? Yeah, I think a broad environment where yields are moving lower because of lower inflation is clearly supportive of risk and then supportive of sterling from sort of an international perspective rather than domestic domestic views. Um, But in a yield environment that's moving lower because of growth is not so supportive for, for risk. So, you know, at, at the moment, I still think we're in the first regime, if I can call it a regime. Why? Because restrictive policy is still priced in the US in the in the next two to three years in the US bond market, even if it's less restrictive than what the Fed is saying. But also, in theory, if growth slows from here, there should be a feedback loop to the Fed as well, where they become more certain in their forecasts and more certain that actually this monetary tightening is feeding through. And you know, more happy that at some point it's going to feed into inflation and therefore sound a bit more relaxed about the rate trajectory going forward. But on the UK side, you know, just just not particularly constructive, which I'm not, I don't think will sound too surprising. But, um, you know, the, the UK is expected to to record the, the worst growth out of all G10 next year. Um, the currency is clearly sort of structurally vulnerable as well. Um, and then on a cyclical basis, we still see some dovish risks around the Bank of England as well. Um, they they seem quite sensitive to firstly the head the the headline growth um, dynamics, which are which are quite poor now, um, but also the housing sector. Um, and I, I think also the currency rally has been interesting as well because I think they're maybe also less concerned about the currency itself as a factor that increases inflation. Um, so lots, lots going on, but but broadly, I think because of the risk backdrop, a bit more neutral, um, and also because of dovish risks around the Bank of England as well, uh, leaves us neutral overall on the on the currency versus the dollar. Yeah, you mentioned the Bank of England there, um, and I think it's worth saying that we've had a pretty full on week in terms of central bank meetings. We had the Bank of England, the ECB. Uh, and the SMB, as well as the Fed. Um, so we have just had that SMB meeting for this quarter um, where they hiked 50 basis points. But again, similarly to their last meeting, suggested in their statement that they were essentially nearly done with tightening. Um, I wonder what, what are your views on the SMB going into Q1 um, and consequently the Swiss franc from here? Yeah, so their inflation forecast remains just below their target, which suggests that they should be very nearly done. Now, we know that it's difficult to say they're done because quite a few central banks have this type of forecast. The Bank of England, for example, but because inflation risks are deemed to be on the upside, 
Um, they, the central banks have then continued to hike, but just because they've maybe lost a bit of conviction in their forecast as well. Um, but I would say the SMB actually do seem to be quite hawkish this cycle compared to history. Now that's not maybe hawkish in a in a in an absolute sense. I think the SMB just genuinely haven't fallen behind the curve, and um, you know, we we had a speech from the governor a few weeks ago saying talking about the importance of pragmatism and and things like that and, and conviction. So I, I think the SMB have been quite sensitive to upside inflation risk, and so they've kept the door open for another rate hike. Um, it's not clear they're going to have to hike rates again, particularly given um, the European growth dynamics, which Switzerland's obviously quite sensitive to. Um, so it's not it's not clear. I see fairly dovish risks around that. And in fact, I thought they could possibly go for a 25 basis points this meeting, but they, they matched the ECB. And I think to some extent, they're watching the currency very closely, which is obviously the other the other part of their monetary policy. Um, and they, 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 they probably did just want to match the, the, the ECB. Um, you know, then, then the question is, well, how are they thinking about the currency? Because that's been important. And then obviously it's important for us as well. Um, earlier on in the year, they actively pursued a stronger currency because they're worried about inflation. But if they raise rates to the stage where they're less concerned about inflation, in theory, they should be a bit more tolerant to a weaker currency. Um, so, so from that perspective, we do see some interest rate divergence between the ECB and the SNB. Uh, and not only that, the SNB at some stage, but we're not entirely sure exactly when, but through the quarter at least, should become a bit more tolerant to uh, currency the currency weakening. Um, and I think the natural gas price story is important as well, because when Europe had this terms of trade shock, um, Sw- the Swiss franc really strengthened on that. And the Euro Swiss in particular was very correlated to natural gas prices. Since then, natural gas prices have moved lower. There's still scope for them to move lower um, as long as the the weather in, the, in Europe broadly normalizes to a 10-year average. It basically doesn't have to... It just can't stay cold this whole winter. Um, that suggests there's some scope for, for gas prices coming down and then for, for Euro Swiss potentially to move a bit a bit higher. So a bit of a nuanced view on, on the Swiss side, but I think there's an opportunity there versus the Euro, but less obvious versus the dollar. Makes sense. Um, shifting a bit away from correlations to uh, bond prices um, and rates markets and looking more to the commodity currencies, um, both of the G10 commodity currencies, Aussie and CAD, are acutely sensitive to commodity prices globally. Um, and for Canada, obviously, specifically oil-led. So the Australian dollar, what what are your thoughts around the currency given its overall relationship to risk asset markets? And then for CAD, for the Canadian dollar, if commodities are set to remain at current levels or possibly lower, as you mentioned, specifically uh, looking at European gas prices, do you see this having a negative effect uh, on the Canadian dollar? Okay, yeah. So let's start with with Aussie. Um, it's quite I have quite a similar view to to Aussie than Sterling, really. Um, sort of at a very high level. 
the, the first is that, you know, Aussie does well in that environment where US yields are falling because inflation is coming down. We, that somewhat happened. And so that that is what makes me a bit cautious. Again, there's probably still a bit to come, um, and particularly based on our views on US inflation. Um, but then in that other in that other scenario as growth slows, uh, if equities come under pressure, Aussie's also likely to as well. So it's, it's likely to be in for quite a volatile ride. Um, and then on the RBA as well, um, we do see some dovish risks around around the RBA. So that makes me a bit more cautious on um, on the Aussie dollar. On on CAD and commodities more broadly, um, the oil price in particular has been interesting because there have been a lot of concerns around the supply dynamics. Um, you know, OPEC cuts, uh, the European price cap on third parties, but the oil prices still move lower, broadly lower through that. And historically, the relationship between global growth and commodities suggests that the oil price should be should be moving lower through the next quarter. Um, now, most anal- most oil analysts that look at it a lot more closely than me think it should move a bit more sideways. So if we sort of retain the assumption that commodities move sideways or lower, I think that makes sense. Um, does that have a negative effect on the currency? Um, I mean, the Bank of Canada essentially... You're going to be the first, one of the first ones in G10 to stop hiking rates. So Canada should have less support from a rate angle, at least sort of in terms of rate, rate of change. Um, and then if commodity prices don't give a boost, and it's difficult to see that as global growth moves lower, and again, the, the assumptions around China, which I'm sure we'll get into, are important, um, it's just unlikely to be able to support the currency that much. So Difficult to have an outright view, but the risk reward just seems to be that the balance, the balance of risk going forward is that it either moves sideways or down. So, so again, I think that I think CAP is looking quite quite interesting. Um, but I think that has to be taken in the context of us having a slightly negative dollar view, where um, CAD can can do a little bit well here and there because of that. But ultimately, just don't see it as being a huge beneficiary. Uh, you mentioned the commodity price outlook uh, with regards to China. I mean, that's been another huge theme that has gathered pace over the last quarter um, and certainly looks set to stay at the forefront of investors' minds going into next year um, with reopening underway and we're moving away now from, from zero COVID policies. How are you thinking about the renminbi as we enter this reopening phase? Um, and what do you think this reopening could mean for China's capital inflows? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I do think China reopening is going to be one of the biggest themes of next year. Um, for us, we're thinking about it from two like from two axes or two lenses, I'd say. The first is from a global perspective. So China's impact to energy prices is really important, particularly for European natural gas, as Europe tries to raise its storage levels in Q2 next year, Q2, Q3, um, as it just drawn it down from, from winter. And so whether Europe has to compete with China for that is, is really quite important. Uh, and so how fast China can reopen, and in particular how... Uh, how fast a rebound is and how strong rebound is in in economic activity or industrial activity uh, is important. And so I think the the fact that like the fundamentals of China suggests that it shouldn't really be reopening, you know, vaccination rates for the elderly are still very low. Um, 
hospital capacity is quite low as well. It's really a political decision to reopen. Suggests there's going to be some sort of speed limit of reopening. And that's consistent with other Asian counterparts. For example, that Taiwan, Hong Kong have had as well. Um, so that makes me broadly quite comfortable that, um, you know, of the, of the assumption around energy prices. Uh, and of course, that feeds back into our inflation views and wider DM risk. On the renminbi and like you know, US, uh, sorry, US domestic, the domestic factors in particular, I think again the timing is important of uh, capital inflows versus outflows. So a more gradual reopening scenario is likely to get you get you're like more likely to get the international inflow uh, before a domestic outflow, and where the domestic outflow is really focused on. The current account dynamics via uh, services outbound and flows and tourism, um, because that's been a a part of the current account that's really sort of been squeezed, uh, and and then and act as as a as a factor that strengthened the currency. And so when that reverses, that's likely to weigh on the currency. But at the moment, you know, our base case, and I think this is important because it is an assumption is that China reopens fairly gradually and gradually enough such that China gets the international inflow before it gets the domestic outflow. Um, and I think that's been reasonably consistent with the, the tone that we've heard from authorities recently, which is this pro-growth tone in the Politburo meeting, um, some suggestion that, that fiscal policy is going to come in and support growth. The suggestion that the growth target is going to be 5% or even above that for next year. Um, and also some support around property and even maybe some regulatory loosening to attract foreign capital. So I think all those things are important. Um, and that keeps that, and that makes us positive on, on uh, CNH from a, from a currency perspective, really because the, the big macro story then is really reflation. Now it's, it's likely to be bumpy, but the direction of travel is reflationary, and that's usually quite positive for currency. Thanks, Pierre. Um, I mean, we've certainly covered quite a lot of ground. I guess from my side, just to summarise all our thoughts on the macro environment, um, it really does come back to those strong correlations that we spoke about earlier between equities and bonds um, and the ties that these have to specific currencies. Um, so having heard and digested the macro story um, just on the discretionary trading side, we recognise that the uncertainties that Pierre's spoken about with regards to growth um, and the lagged effects of tightening. Um, and we think about giving, you know, given the levels that we've traded to in many currency pairs versus the dollar, a lot of them retracing almost 50% of the depreciation that they had in the first three quarters of this year, it is hard not to be aware of the proportionality of those moves um, and the likelihood that we may be in a bit of a holding period for now, particularly in the short term where generally risk is reduced into year end, as is liquidity in markets um, and also market volumes. And we've already seen evidence of that this week, even with um, the large uh, global macro events that we've had. So just as a team um, on the trading side, we do maintain um, our short dollar position in the portfolio versus the euro and yen 
Um, but taking stock of the levels that have held in Euro crosses, we've also evolved um, to have an equal overall long Euro bias in the portfolio versus sterling as well. Um, and really, this is just attentive to the idea that European rates probably do have potential to move further um, versus their counterparts into the next quarter. Um, so that, that's all we have time for today. Um, thank you, Pierre, for joining me today and providing a, a very comprehensive overview of the next quarter. Um, thank you for tuning in overall to this Q1 Macro Outlook podcast with Millennium Global. Um, for anyone interested in diving in on one or more of these topics in detail, we would very much welcome a conversation with you uh, and look forward to speaking with you in the next quarter. 